Welcome to the interview. I'm your host, Janine McIntyre. This podcast will feature candid conversations with thought leaders who stand out due to their committed approach to organizational health. As a listener, you will be inspired and moved to action by our guests' powerful stories that highlight the challenges, triumphs, and valuable lessons they have learned on their leadership journeys. With student success at the forefront, you will be provided with insights that will empower you in your work in meaningful ways to cultivate a culture in which you and your organization will thrive. Today's guest speaker is one of Southwestern College's own, Dr. Kendrick Murillo. Dr. Murillo most recently served as the president and superintendent of Southwestern Community College District in Chula Vista, California, completing another impressive chapter of her life, which spans over 20 years, serving as an executive leader in higher education. A tremendously respected leader with a distinctive, diverse background in business and higher education, serving large and small community colleges, she inspires change readiness, loves serving diverse populations, and students needing community college the most, the underserved. Among her litany of accomplishments are her successes in improving fiscal accountability and transparency, creating environments that encourage innovation through building future leaders, and closing the equity gap by ensuring pathways for underserved students and opportunities for underrepresented employees. Dr. Murillo is a product of California's community college system. She obtained an associate's from Barstow Community College, a bachelor's in science in business administration from the University of Redlands, and a master's degree and doctorate degree in organizational development and organizational leadership, respectively, from Pepperdine University. Dr. Murillo has modeled authentic and courageous leadership in the most convenient and most challenging of times, inspiring all that have had the privilege to support the transformation she has led throughout her career and those blessed to hear about her journey. Dr. Kendrick Murillo, welcome to the interview and thank you for being our inaugural guest. Thank you, Janine. It's really great to be here for your inaugural podcast. Well, it is our pleasure to have you here. And it's the timing of it all is so important. They say timing matters most in life. And uh, with that, we know just a couple of weeks ago, you retired from Southwestern Community College District. I imagine since then you've been working through many emotions and perhaps reflecting on memories, not only of your time with Southwestern, but your career as a whole. With that being said, if you were to travel back in time and visit yourself when you were just starting out in higher education, what advice would you give yourself? As I look back, and I've done a lot of reflecting the last few months because you really think about your life when you are saying, I'm going to retire um, after working all these years because higher education was my second or third career. So, you know, when I think back on it all, I would tell myself and I would tell leaders that are young coming into higher education that who you are is how you will lead. And You can try to be somebody else, and you will do something that we used to call walking broken. And so when I really found my authentic leadership was when I realized that how I lead is based on who I am. So let me explain that a little bit. I used to, I took all of these 
tests and inventories along the way. And I took StrengthsFinder. The very number one item for me in strengths was I'm inclusive. Number two, I'm a learner. And when I finally embraced that piece of inclusion in my leadership, I really came home to who I was. And I wish I had done that 20 years ago because I think I would have been a better leader. I would have been able to accomplish more. And I would have let go of the self-doubt that I always carried with me every time I would start to do something new. I would feel so scared. I'm supposed to do this. I'm not doing well. My first presidency, I thought I was going to get fired at the end of the first year. And I would have been more secure in who I was as a leader. And I think that's really important because to do meaningful work, you need to be authentic. Mm, That's good. So Kendrick, you had mentioned about being exclusive and your approach, your personality. What encouraged you to step into yourself, being your true self? When I was working at Pasadena City College as a vice president, I really kind of got a glimmer of it. Most of my life as a manager, I was doing I should be, I should do. I used to laugh after I sort of realized that it's okay to be a woman leader and it's okay to have emotion, and it's okay to care about people. And I think that happened for me when I was working at Pasadena City College because I fell in love with so many people at the college, at the college, and I started seeing that it was okay to care. You can, you can care about people, and you can still do the right thing by the organization. And by caring about people, people start trusting who you are. Now, when you mentioned in, about really higher education in the space that you're retiring from was really your second or third career. So what did, path did you see yourself as a young adult taking and which path did you take? Well, I started college with the idea that I would be a history teacher. And my mom was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. And so I had it in my head that I was going to become a history teacher. And I might add this caveat that I was a young mother. And so by the time I entered college, I had two children. And I was in the middle of a divorce when I was about four years into community college And what diverted me from my path mainly was I had a teacher one night pull me aside and go, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, I'm trying to get a degree so I can become a history teacher. And he said, you know, teaching right now is really filled with a lot of professionals. It's hard to get a job. And he knew that I had two kids. And he said, you know, if if you really want to try to do something, you have a really good brain for math. You are really good at math and it connects with you. Have you thought about going into business? It's an area where women can do anything they want. And he said the field has very few women and it's a great field and you can just about go anywhere you want. You know, I thought about what he was saying. I did some research and I And I decided to get a business degree and I got a bachelor's in business administration. 
in the meantime, got a job at Southern California Edison and worked my way up to a manager. And so that was, it did kind of save me because I was able to provide for my children in a good way, promote myself in a company, and eventually found myself back at education. And what was the road back to education? Well, that road was, I was still working for Southern California Edison, and I was in an executive MBA, and I decided to move over to an organizational development program because I really wanted to understand people and how people impact business and how business impacts people and how to make it better. Organizational development's built on sociological and psychological principles of how you work with people in an organization. And so for me, it was the beginning of coming back to who I really was, somebody that believed in learning, inclusion, education. So I left Southern California Edison after laying people off, um, basically felt like I jumped off a cliff because I left a three-figure job for nothing. I started teaching part-time at community college and started consulting. It was the riskiest thing I'd ever done. There's so much there, Kindred. Um, But I'm curious that throughout these transitions in your life, and really it's funny, they say that we plan our days and life has a way of ordering our steps. Um, But what were the most teachable moments in this path that you have taken from business focus to getting back in touch with your passion in education, specifically higher education? I think one of them was I left a job that I really loved one time because my boss was a bully. I think one of the teachable moments for me was I needed to become more resilient and courageous. And I say that carefully because I never encourage anybody to work for a bully. I have no use for that. What I could have done was speak up more courageously, and maybe the outcome would have been different, and I wouldn't have had to leave. So that was one where I learned, you know, you have to be courageous sometimes and speak up, and especially when you're speaking up for others. I think the other one for me as I was going through all of these transitions, I lost my 14-year-old daughter in this process of living in life. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to deal with. Still is the hardest thing I ever had to deal with. And what I learned from that is you really have to spend time with the people you love because you will never get those time moments back. I always tell employees that work for me, I better not find out you missed something important for your kids because your kids are extremely the most important thing. And And I'm glad that my kids were so much a part of my life. In fact, I probably could be called a bad parent because I took my kids to work sometimes with me. And they got to do tours of Solar One. (laughs) (laughs) What can I tell you? They had had an interesting childhood. And I, I really feel like I learned a lot from that. I heard somebody was giving a podcast the other day and they were saying, how do you spell love? And the person said, T-I-M-E. And I think that's so true. Mm. Um, That by spending time with people, that is really giving love. Because you're giving the biggest gift you can, your time. So that's one that 
I take with me every day um, with things. When I think about, especially in working with people, you know, I'm one of those people and I still like that I am a person who does this. I trust first. I always trust people first. Jim Collins, who is an amazing executive coach and leader, always says that that's the right way to go. And and I'm just naturally one who trusts. And I think I'm still always going to be that way. And I'm also going to be more careful and recognize the signs that when somebody tells you who they really are, believe them. Mm. Don't always go overboard giving the benefit of the doubt. I think that I've seen that with colleagues and and people who they have their motives and they're going to do what they want because of their motives. And no matter how much you trust them and how much you take care of them, they are still going to go after their motives. So, you know, I've just learned to be a little more thoughtful and careful, but I still trust first. Thank you, Kendra, so much for that. It's so rich and loaded with so much. And having gone through, obviously, what you've shared, some adversity, some highs and lows, which is just part of life, what would you say are the moments that you're most proud of? Not just in your higher education career, but just your life. I think if I was, and you caught me on this question, right after I got an email or my son posted something on my Facebook, it just about did me in. He posted something about how sometimes he never really understood me as a parent. I always tried to be a good parent, and I believe me, I messed up. I can't tell you how many times I messed up. And that post uh, for me, if I could only do half of what you're doing or have done, I would be so happy with myself. And I would say I'm most proud of the fact that I raised a son who has the values that he does and that he does work and, and leads people with those values. And that just excites me to no end <laughs> because I, I always knew he had it, but you just don't always know until, you know, they get older. <laughs> so <laughs> what can I tell you, Janine? It's just kind of like, you know, you go through this thing of I'm a mom and there's times when you think, is he ever going to get a brain? You know, especially because we, when he went, when we lost Michelle, he was 16. And so we were both devastated. Just, I mean, everybody blame, when you lose a child, you blame yourself. And everybody in the family blames themselves. And it takes a long time to work your way through it. So for me to see him living a fulfilling life with the values he has, I'm, I can't say enough about that. I think the other thing that I'm really proud of, and it's been hard, is the work we've done at Southwestern College to become a more inclusive organization, to hold people accountable. It's hard. It's hard work. You get a lot of blowback. You win false friends and true enemies. Um, I don't care how you go around it, but I've seen a change. And I'm proud of that work because I feel like it's not where it needs to be. And it is in a much better place than it was four years ago. And that to me is important. I am so hopeful the college will be reaffirmed on its accreditation 
That was my goal because the college has not been reaffirmed in almost 20 years. It's been through probation. It's been through warning. And when a college goes into one of those sanctions, it takes energy away from students. And our energy should be focusing on students. So that's the other thing I'm most proud of is that I feel like the college has become more student-focused. We don't have conversations without the word student anymore in the middle of it. And I think that is critical. So the last thing I would tell you that's really I'm proud of is that we, through inclusion and through a lot of work, I think we've done a lot of work to help diversify the college. It's still got a long ways to go, but it starts at the top. And when your leadership team is 75% diverse and your management team has been diversified in four years by 24%, you're, you're, you're doing okay. You're, you're doing some of the right things. The Hispanic managers have been diversified by 24%. The actual management has been diversified by 16%. But that's work that was intentional for me because it changes the conversation, one that needs to change in our, in our country uh, and particularly in our state. So I'm proud of that work. I'm proud of growing leaders. I have grown some amazing leaders and I have a, I don't know, I recognize talent and I hire it. And then I try to help it grow. I mean, it's been a little hard at Southwestern because my time has been really I've always had one foot in one department or another. And this last year, I've been able to not have any feet in any departments, which has been lovely. Kendra, you had mentioned in that whole space, you're talking about diversity and inclusion. And you were quoted as saying um, that it didn't take you long um, to be on the campus to very clearly see that it was an anti-racism, but not only that anti-Blackness culture. And then you went on, you were attributed to saying that as a white person, that your job is to do something about it, not to stand by and be passive about it. Can you share with us why you feel that that is your responsibility as a white person to take action? As a white person, and, and, and it took me a while to get through this, by the way, because I, I used to, when I'd hear the word white supremacy, I would just like, oh my God, that's me. And you feel guilty. You, you have to work your way personally through the feelings of understanding white supremacy and how uh, the culture of oppression has unfolded in the United States. Now, while my I'm not personally responsible for slavery, I am responsible for allowing oppression of others if I allow it, especially when I'm the CEO or I'm in a position of power. So I think what I've learned as a white person and someone who thought I was Indian most of my life and then found out later on I wasn't, was that we have a responsibility to break the cycle of oppression. Because if we're going to have a truly diverse, inclusive culture, we've got to love and value all diversity. And one race, ethnicity, gender identity, they can't hold power over the other if you really want a true democracy. And and I don't believe we're there yet. And I still believe that a democracy is better than some of the other things I've seen in the world. So my responsibility is to use my power 
to lift others up any way I can. And I will do it ethically and I will do it right. And it's my responsibility never to let people be oppressed because if I watch or sit back and, and do that, then I'm just as responsible as the person who's doing the oppression. And we all are capable of oppression. I mean, I was one of those women that broke through the glass ceiling, right? I mean, I was the only woman on an eight-man management team at Southern California Edison. I remember being told when I took a job at Southern California Edison as a plant equipment operator, I was taking a man's job away from him, and he was trying to feed his family. It didn't matter that I was trying to feed two kids. I remember that. And I'm still capable of oppression. So I I think anybody is capable of oppressing someone else. And we have to go deep inside and learn what that looks like, call ourselves on it, and also call others on it. There are people who don't care and don't want to know. And I would tell you that when most people start really understanding their role in oppression, they are willing to dive deep and do the work. Kendrick, as you're aware, you know, speaking of race issues and social unrest and anti-racism, as well as inclusion and diversity concerns, these past 12 months have presented many unprecedented challenges for all of us to navigate through, which definitely includes the pandemic. How do you think this will influence higher education moving forward? It's a good question, Janine, and I think it's one that's so important right now. It's hard to say this, but the good part about COVID-19 is that it exposed the disparate impacts of our economy on people of color. And I think that's sad, And I think it's really helped people recognize what was happening in our country. What levels of poverty are there? The disparate impacts of COVID on the Latinx, Filipino, and Black community are, they're different in different parts of our nation. But the bottom line is our BIPOC communities are more impacted than anyone in this mess. And as we work our way through it, I think the good part about this, if you want to take something good from COVID, and there's nothing good about 500,000 people dying, um, is people are starting to understand that our economy was becoming haves and have-nots. And, and that's important for education. And in particularly in California, our legislature is beginning to really understand that the most diverse, most underfunded system of higher education is community colleges. We are the place where students who are diverse come to get jobs. And for me, that is going to impact higher education because the ivory tower might not be as ivory anymore. And I think that people are starting to understand the importance of community college and what it can do for our nation. So that's one impact to higher ed. It plays into the whole racial reckoning that the video of George Floyd unleashed in our country. It was there. It needed to be exposed. 
And it's horrible that it was exposed that way. And it's time for our country to deal with this issue. It's unconscionable that some of the things that happen in our country still continue to happen in the 21st century. So how that will impact higher education? Well, I'm already seeing that people that I never thought would really understand that you are a predominantly white institution and you act like a predominantly white institution. (laughs) (laughs) And they're starting to go, oh, you're seeing a reckoning of thought that really diversity and inclusion matter. That, you know, it's, if you're, I was looking at the numbers for the community college system, we're still 61% white faculty. No, I'm happy to say that Southwestern's somewhat better than that, still not where it should be. And that's because we've been intentional that we need to continue to really do that work around making sure that students have people that look like them in leadership roles, in faculty roles. And so I think that put an accelerator under higher education to the level of the UCs and the CSUs are really doing some deep work um, along with the community colleges. Um, Southwestern's been doing this work for four years. And, and, and really, I think it started before, um, but we really got intentional four years ago when I came around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, And I think what you're going to see is higher ed is going to become more equitable. It's going to become more diverse. And it's going to become more inclusive rather than exclusionary. It is a very exclusionary system in so many ways that I don't even like to describe. So... That's a good thing. So out of this horrible, horrible last year, I believe higher education is going to permanently change. And I also think that distance education is going to become more important to community colleges. Well, thank you, Kendra. That, you know, hope is all we need to keep going in some situations. And after a year of really depleted hope on so many fronts, it's just good to hear that the forecast ahead is one filled with possibilities, new possibilities. But it hasn't been lost on me and anyone that's been in this space, of course, you as well. And you talk about addressing issues of of lack of inclusion and dealing with racism, lack of diversity and equity, that they're not always popular, you know, by all. And they can create a lot of conflict because of different ideologies, views relative to those things. How have you managed conflict in this space, higher education space specifically, so that these things that can present them as barriers, they do not impede progress? Yeah, it's uh, that's a really <laughs> tough one because, you know, most of us in education are conflict adverse. We get into education because we love teaching and students and we want to help people, right? So I think what happens because of that is really nice people 
don't stand up. And other people are allowed to make organizations dysfunctional. So I think I've learned to, to take a stand. I tell people that I used to have a board member who tell me I have a steel titanium backbone, a soft front, and an open heart. And I think that's probably how I deal with conflict. I, if I feel like we have to work our way through it, I continue to work my way through it. I'm relentless. I do it slowly and carefully, and I keep moving through it. I don't back down. I've had lots of opportunity at Southwestern to back down, and I just kept moving through it by being authentic, by caring, by listening to all conversation. I mean, I've had people tell me that I I need to stop this racism stuff and I need to stop this inclusion stuff and that it's not right and how does a white male feel and how does that, you know. And I'm like, yeah, and do you know what it's like to have been oppressed all of your life? Do me a favor. Go sit down and talk to an African-American black person about what their life's been like. And, you know, some of that's happening. People are, they're stopping and they're going and sitting and listening to what people have to say because we didn't stop. We, we don't, we're not mean, we're not ugly, but we just keep enforcing the rules. And when I say that, I say like the first time I took on a hiring committee because it wasn't diverse, you thought I had like blown up the college. And I went back to the constituency leaders and I said, you know, I need help here. This committee is not diverse and I'm not going to let it move forward. You know what? I stood my ground, strong back. And eventually I didn't have to say anything. When I required EEO and implicit bias training for anyone who participated in a hiring committee, you'd thought I'd blown up the college. Um, and I just kept reinforcing it. And, and I did it nicely. And I did it with kindness. And I still did it. Um, because I knew that I was never going to see diverse pools if I didn't. I know I've been doing this for 10 years. And you can't have an all-white or an all-brown committee and say you have diversity. You have to have different voices, gender identities, ethnicities at the table. And so by doing those things... Um, it created a lot of conflict and, and anger. I mean, there are people at Southwestern that can't wait for me to leave. Um, you know what? And I'm okay with that because I came and did what I intended to do. And to that, Kendra, you know, we say thank you. We say thank you. You know, my mother always said that you're not going to get the approval of everyone and actually it's not everyone's approval that you should seek. Um, and I, I thank you for your convictions and your courage in going forward. 
and really laying the groundwork and um, creating a workplace culture that um, really serves everyone's interests and serving the college district's interests. We that uh, remain and representing the college district, several will continue that work. Um, and in furtherance of that, what do you believe are the key performance indicators of a healthy organization that everyone across all levels of the organization um, can support? Well, I think it starts with respect. And respect means something different to everyone, right? Um, and that means you have to learn how to respect other people. Um, so I think that creates a healthy culture. If I can have, you know, a discussion with you, Janine, you and I have had lots of discussions about things that we don't always agree on. And we still respect each mm -hmm. other. Um, I think that lays the groundwork for being able to deal with conflict. It um, lays the groundwork for authentic conversations. So where you feel like people are heard and they're valued. Um, it doesn't matter. You have a whole bunch of people at the table if you don't hear them um, and that they're not valued. So I think that's important in a healthy organization. The other piece that's so critical that underlies everything is the systems and processes. So human resource systems and processes, processes for managing personnel, processes for how people are afforded over time, all of those kinds of things are really critical and they're important because in the absence of system and processes, people make stuff up and that's when unfairness happens and things happen that shouldn't. So when you've got a good system in place, people know this is what we do. This is how we do it. And I think that we've made a lot of headway. Um, when I first came to Southwestern, there were a lot of issues. I mean, I just remember the first one was human resource transaction <laughs> forms, lovingly known as HRTs. Um, they are now online. I used to walk into my office to a stack of HRTs that I, I thought, I'm a college president and why am I doing this? Shouldn't my VPs be doing this? Shouldn't the deans be doing this? Um, and so I think it's really creating those systems and processes and policies that back those, um, those pieces. I think constructive conflict where people can disagree and still be respectful to each other is a sign of a really healthy organization because you make better decisions. You know, it's like this last year with my executive leadership team. We had Filipino, biracial, Latinx, African-American, black, and white represented at the table. The conversations were not always happy, happy conversations. And they were respectful, and we were able to have constructive conflict and come out with better decisions. I think that really was apparent in the COVID-19 situation. I think we managed that really well at Southwestern. 
Um, and that was through a lot of different opinions. And you've got to be able to work through them and do it in a way where you come out the other side with solid decisions. I used to have an architect that would tell me we make better dis- decisions together. And we really do. Yeah, we do. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And that that constructive conflict, it's amazing how many people um, are uncomfortable with conflict and they seek to try and resolve it and quite often by ignoring it. And there are so many lost opportunities in that. So thank you for leading and having those uncomfortable conversations and providing people the space to show up as their authentic selves. So we talk a lot about, I know you've lately, we've heard these phrase, you know, leadership, and that's a loaded term. <laughs> what does it mean? And But specifically lately, it's just been this transformational leadership phrase that's thrown around quite often. And we hear of it spoken in the sense of the charismatic founders of disruptive companies, sometimes even referring to it in a negative sense. With us, you know, we have the companies where someone's coming in and, uh, you know, redoing everything and disrupting the norm within that organization, hopefully to create a better organization for all concerned. But some of this transformation is not so abrupt. Sometimes this transformation, as you know, can help happen in more subtle ways. What stands out to you as the qualities of not just a transformational leader, but a purpose leader? You know, uh, my, my, my uh, doctorate is in leadership. So I studied all of the different forms of leadership, including transformational leadership. And I'm not much on charismatic leaders, um, to be very candid. I, I will say that very openly, because I think charisma only goes so far. I think a transformational leader is one that uses good principles and, and background. So I consider myself transformational. I feel like I did some amazing work at Contra Costa. I did some amazing work at Southwestern and Lake Tahoe Community College District. And the key thing here is you stimulate and inspire others to achieve and you grow leaders So my job is to train my replacement. So as a transformational leader, you want to find talent, you want to develop talent, and you want to empower that talent to lead forward. Because when you do that, then you can actually do your job. It's really important. When I look at Dr. King, and I know she's, you know, got a goal and we're going to, she's going to get it done. And I don't have to worry about it again. And, and I use that as an example of, you know, you, you find people that are really strong equity leaders, equity focused, they're self-aware, they're data driven, and they really understand um, that students are first and you help them grow. The other piece I think about transformational leadership is I love Francisco Rodriguez, the chancellor at Los Angeles Community College District. I remember I went to a training one time and he said, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. Mm. And I went, that is so true. If you're really transformational, you're going to do culture change work. Culture change work is, it takes a long time. It's five to seven years in organizations that are not trusting, like Southwestern. 
three to five in a trusting organization. So you have to go in and you have to go deep. So from my perspective, you need to understand organizational change. So I always use um, a research model, and it's based on assessing the situation, kind of like Stockdale paradox. You need to understand your current reality Mm -hmm. so that you really know what to do. You set a really aspirational vision, and you put the steps in place to achieve that vision. I use that to really get where I think I need to go. Because I think if you don't look at it from a culture change point of view, then anything you do, can it won't last. And the whole idea behind stuff is to put stuff in place so that it does last. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? You want it to be, you know, so, so when I came to Southwestern, I used the action research model of change. So I basically did problem identification, consultation with experts, gathered data, and got feedback from constituencies, did a joint diagnosis of the problem, and we designed interventions. Putting in interventions based on what you do. So like when I first got there, identified early on that we had some real, we had some really strong racial tensions, and part of that was around a lack of accountability. So what I started doing was holding people accountable. took a lot of time and a lot of effort, and I made a lot of enemies. And uh, there are people that no longer work at the college because I held them accountable. And that's important because if you don't hold people accountable, then other people start feeling like it doesn't matter what I do. They're just going to get away with it. And, And I think there are people who still feel that way. But what they don't know is what we've done and we can't go around telling. You know, it's like, I'm not going to tell you I put a letter in file for somebody or why this person left. And I think that's important. So we diagnosed, we, we understood there was a lack of accountability. People had not been held accountable. And we started putting systems in place to do that. We also had Dr. Harper come in, help us understand some of the racial tensions, give us his recommendations. We did surveys. They verified that we have some issues that we need to continue to work on with our employees and our students. And we just kept putting in new interventions to work at this. And one of the great ones has been the Advancing Teaching Equity Academy. We're actually getting equity and all of these new ways of working with students into the classroom. So it's impacting our students in a great way. It's really around culture change. Uh, And I think people that come in and think they're going to be transformational without doing deep culture change, I don't have much uh, faith in that. Well, Kendra, I appreciate the work you've done. And there's a phrase that I've used of yours that I've borrowed. When you talk about putting systems in place and making sure they remain to support the organization all in lines of what you mentioned, transparency, consistency, and accountability, and referring to that as president proofing. (laughs) (laughs) I've used that many times, and it's so true, no matter what type of institution, if it's higher education or otherwise, where 
establishing a construct where those things remain the same as you're transforming. So hopefully you can transition from the transformation and provide um, some stability that allows for that growth forward. So thank you for that. But with that being said, if you are given a blank slate to start your own company, institution, higher education, or otherwise, what would be the key organizational components you'd establish first and why? Wow. You know, I used to, in 2002, (laughs) when I started my my doctoral program in 2005, I went back to something I wanted to do in 2002, which was I wanted to start my own community college because I was just like, this is nuts. (laughs) You know, this is just, there's something wrong with us, you know, And, and and I grew to love it. And I also think that if I was starting a whole brand new organization, I would start with um, really core principles around what is our purpose as an organization. So if I was going to start a community college from the ground up, our purpose is to serve students, right? And so therefore, I would want to hire leadership that is student-focused, equity-focused, race-conscious, and understands culturally responsive teaching. And I would want that faculty and leadership that I would want to hire to have those qualities. So I would design job descriptions and systems for hiring people that are inclusive, that screen people in, that are looking at equitable outcomes so that we are creating a diverse and vibrant organization. I would hire an amazing finance person because I don't care what anybody says, money is important. And so I would want an extremely well-run finance department. I would want an extremely well-run human resource organization that not only is human resources, but really comes down to organizational development because it's your people. You, you figure 90, almost 90, 87% of our budget is tied up in people. You need strong human resources and way too many private companies don't put enough emphasis on making sure they have good human resources. And I think that's really important. My human resources department would be, it would have a whole section on culture It would have a whole section on diversity and inclusion. It would be one that really top drawer. I mean, I'm just, I, you know, what, what's happened in HR the last couple of years is important at Southwestern. You can see the differences and the changes um, when you start putting systems in place. I think the other thing is really making sure that as we bring people on, we always keep the purpose mm-hmm. in front of them. We are here for students. I think way too often people lose what the purpose of their job is. And I think you have to keep that front and center constantly. You know, for me, I love students. I'm in this work for students. And that why has to be constantly out there. So I think if you put in good leadership, good faculty, good staff, good finance, good HR that is all focused on really supporting the institution and your students' welfare 
I think that would be the start for me would be, it would be value laden. It would, it would be a very valuable <laughs> organization. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, yeah, because I just think that people really want to feel fulfilled. And if they do feel fulfilled in their work, that they do so much better. Yeah, oh, that's, that's great. So, with that, this kind of walks us into another area. What's next for you, Kendrick? I don't know yet. I, I really haven't made, I'm not making any plans other than we're going to take a three week trip. Uh, in April, masks and everything else, we will have had our shots. And so that's to create a break. I've had, you know, people come to me and ask me if I would do some mentoring or coaching. I may do some of that. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do work that I love. That I know. And growing leaders, I love. Working with students, I love. So not exactly sure yet. And I do nothing. Isn't it great to have that option? <laughs> you know, um, I never thought I would. And, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that I do. Because I've worked since I've been 11 years old. And to have the chance to say, I don't have to run and be in a schedule all day long, every day. Because uh, that's literally what my life's been like for the last 20 years. I go from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting. I actually look forward to getting mm-hmm. up and not having anything yeah, on my calendar. I totally, I can totally appreciate that. So, Will, we thank you, um, Kendrick, for all that you've done. And I know finding inspiration from those who have traveled a road before us, and I have been inspired by this conversation today, but we can also be inspired or presents opportunity when we learn of different perspectives, especially during challenging times and hearing about how people were able to overcome some challenging times in their lives, which we all will face and and usually face many times. Those of us, with that being said, those of us that have had the privilege to work under your leadership know that you to be a person that really appreciates quotes Is there a particular quote that speaks to you on a level of inspiration? And I know it's probably hard just to reduce it down to one, but if there's one or two that you could share with us and let us know exactly what it is meant for you, I would appreciate getting your insight. So I've had one with me for a long, long time. No matter what I do, it's, it's at the bottom of my personal email. And it's by Michelangelo. The greater danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and falling short, but in setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. I, when I ran across that, it really told me it's okay if you fail, if you set, but you need to set those goals high. You need to expect the best out of yourself. And it's okay if you don't do exactly what you thought you could do. It's okay. The other one that became so important to me in the work of when I started doing work around closing what used to be called the achievement gap, what we all now call the equity gap, because achievement gap is deficit language, is the one that Theodore Roosevelt comes forward with. And I won't read the whole thing, but I think it really gets to the whole idea of 
it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is mm. actually in the arena. And, and, and why that's important, I have friends that do this work with me and, and we'll text each other, oh, I see you in the arena. Because we know that anti-racism work is work that requires courage and it requires strength. And they're going to be critics everywhere. And they're going to say all kinds of things about you. And if you fail, you will fail. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've failed. And you will do so daring greatly because you are going to put yourself out there and you're going to have courageous comments. You're going to take on stuff that you're going to get criticized for. I mean, I've had my name spread across the paper. I've been, you know, told I was a carpetbagger. God knows what. And I'm mm -hmm. still going to do the fight because it's important and it's okay because people, you know, I, I've learned sometimes if somebody criticizes you or hates you, mm, yeah, that's actually in your favor. Yeah. That's really good. Kendra, you know, I love that quote too by Theodore Roosevelt, the man in the arena. It has held me accountable to me, you know, being more than just someone that wants to walk, you know, talk the talk. It's, it's really supporter action behind that, you know, for me. So I can appreciate how it's been profound in your life as well. You know, throughout this discussion, there's several words that keep, have, that have popped up and that you've mentioned. And I don't even know if you're aware of this, but repeatedly you've used courage and trust and passion, authentic, being authentic, authenticacy, inclusion, intention, and empathy, and truth. I appreciate this, and these things have not been lost on me, as I also trust they will not be lost on our listeners. And those things collectively mean a transformational leader. So there again, Kendra, thank you for the impact that you made, not only at Southwestern Community College District, but in this higher education space, as well as in our society. These things that you speak truth to are things that I think as we move forward, hopefully looking for a better day when we can just work together and help one another to be our best selves, that these are the forefront. And the work that you've done, the work you've done in support of making everyone feel like they belong, that they are part of something, they are welcome, and they are valued, that that will continue. You may not be the president and superintendent of Southwestern Community College District at this time, but the work that you've done will forever remain. And I always say is we never get it all done, right? The list is never complete, but if you left a place in a better condition than how you found it, consider it a job well done. So for that, thank you, Kendrick. <laughs> and before we let you go, we have what we call a five and five. So it's time for our five and five. And these are just a few questions that we like to ask our guests that are designed to trigger some just rapid fire responses to let us all, you know, tap into you, the person, and get to know a little bit more about you. So are you ready? What is your favorite travel destination? 
I love Cambria, California because it's quiet and Lake Louise, Canada because oh, of its beauty right. I've never been to either place, um, so I will add them to my list. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what has adversity taught you? You know, to get back up, get back up, try again. And most importantly with this piece is don't do the same thing that tripped you up to begin with. Learn from what you did the first time so that when you go again, that Mm, you are successful. Can you name a leader that has inspired you and why? I've got two that kind of are my guideposts. I love Brene Brown. I don't think she intended to be a leader in the world, but she's a researcher who who really understands so much about people and has written so many books. And, you know, she helps us become better leaders by being more equitable, vulnerable leaders. And I think her research and vulnerability has helped me really grow as a person the last 10 years. So I, I really appreciate her. I always love Nelson Mandela because he understood that you have to honor and respect other cultures and the way they do things in order to create a better world. And that you can't go and destroy something that people love and you can't attack it and expect it to be a better world. You need to embrace that culture. You need to embrace that diversity and mm. work from that spot. Yeah, that's good. Not that's from good. one of What is your guiding principle? I think most people will tell you I've got a strong uh-huh. back, a caring front, and an open heart. I think I've been told, I remember my board member in Tahoe, she used to laugh at me, you know, steel titanium backbone. And not always, believe me, if you saw me after some of the things I've been through, you would not think I had a strong back. But I always do. I, I, I know I have a strong back and I care very, very deeply. And I feel like I have an open heart. I'm always open to what the world's willing to send out. And okay, I'm always willing to try great. to make it better. Well, that's the end of those questions. But I, Kendra, I would like to ask you one more that wasn't on here. And it's that old, you know, don't believe in failures. But if there's something that you could go back to and undo or do a little different in a different manner, what would that be? I think that really gives people some understanding. Uh, We do make missteps. And if you could reflect on them and make the changes, that's what's most important. Tough one, because, you know, every morning I get up and I have become a real believer in affirmations of who you are. So I, I write this piece. I am where I am. I'm grateful for who I am. And, and who I am is a result of the choices I made to the opportunities and challenges life gave me. And mm-hmm. I am becoming. And so for me, it's if I were to change one of those mistakes, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. And I don't know that that would be acceptable. I could tell you I would not have let my daughter go to her dad's the night that she got killed in the car. I could tell you I wouldn't have taken a promotion and moved my kids in high school. I could tell you those things. And I also know that I would be different and I would not be who I am today. So 
I am the sum total of all those choices. And, and I'm still mm. becoming. That, that, that's rich. That I, Kendra, that's rich. And that's a powerful way to end that. So thank you. So thank that you. It's so nice to Listeners, we hope that you enjoy this insightful episode of the interview featuring Dr. Kendrick Murillo as much as we did putting it together for you. We hope that you felt her authenticity in this conversation where she demonstrated that empathy, vulnerability, and trust are essential in building sustainable organizational health. Let's be encouraged to consider her adage of possessing a strong backbone, soft front, and open heart as we go about our professional and personal life. As she's learned, we should know our strengths and embrace them, not second-guessing ourselves, but holding ourselves accountable to furthering inclusivity through our actions and words. If you enjoyed this interview, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to us via your podcast provider. This podcast, the interview has been brought to you by the Office of Employee Relations in Title IX, Human Resource Division at Southwestern Community College District in Chula Vista, California. It has been my pleasure to serve as your host. I would like to acknowledge my colleagues, Mei Zing and Theodora Bellinger in the Office of Employee Relations in Title IX, who have served along with me as the executive producers of this production. We would like to extend our special thanks to our colleagues at Southwestern College, namely Professor Francisco Bustos and the Frontero Drum Fusion for permission to use their musical piece, Memory Has No End, in this podcast. Graphic design was created and provided by our own publications associate, Brenda Mora. Additional thanks to our colleagues that supported us in launching this project, Dr. Kendrick Murillo, Rose Delgadio, Zanita Encarnacion, Lillian Leopold, Sylvia Nagales, and Mark Colcleaser. Now, we would like to hear from you. If you have suggestions on future guests, those that you would like to be inspired and encouraged in hearing their story, drop us a line at swcertix at swccd.edu. As we close, we will leave you with some wisdom from Rick Warren. While it is wise to learn from experience, it is wiser to learn from the experiences of others. Thanks for listening.